John 7. We'll be in John 7 in just a bit, so you can find that if you want. John 7. I remember when Jen and I were first starting to have children, you know, when we announced the birth of babies. That was a while ago. Um, <laughs> but I, I distinctly remember hearing my parents and I think some other people say to us, Man, I wouldn't want to be raising kids in this culture. It was bad enough when we were raising you boys, but man, I wouldn't want to be doing that now. Anyone ever heard anything similar to that? A couple of you? Okay. <laughs> Some of you just had babies, like just had them. We just announced a couple uh, today. And you're surveying the culture and you're thinking to yourself, man, what is the world going to be like by the time that they're older and they're having their families? By the way, our middle daughter just turned 17 yesterday. So like... And our oldest turns 20 soon. So, you know, that's in our minds. But like some of you just had babies and you're wondering, what is this world going to be like? And I imagine every generation feels like this to some degree or another. Every generation sees culture change. And there's no denying that our society is, is moving away, drifting away from the Judeo-Christian roots uh, we once had. My purpose today is not to spend time on that but just to acknowledge that the world is shifting. The tide is turning. It has been for a while. And over the years, people's thoughts on Jesus has shifted. And there was a day when the prevailing thoughts of Jesus were not only positive, but enthusiastic. And that's no longer the case. And people's thoughts about those who follow Jesus are even worse. So how should we live as Christ followers in a world where the story of Jesus is less and less palatable? You know, this whole series is called The Story of Jesus. But what do we do and how do we live in this world when the story of Jesus people are less enthusiastic about? Well, to answer that, we turn in our Bibles to John 7, where Jesus shows us how he responded to an environment that was becoming increasingly hostile. So John 7, and follow along as I read the first 10 verses here, and we'll kind of work our way through, our, through the text in pieces. So let's start with verses 1 through 10. Follow along. This is what God's Word says. Now, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers, this is his siblings, okay? Not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, last chapter, John 6, uh, when we worked our way through John 6, we saw Jesus provide for the masses in this miraculous way, right? When he fed the 5,000. And then we, we heard his teaching where he talked about his body and his blood that was going to be given and how they were to eat of him and to drink of him. And we saw that it was a hard teaching and that some people started leaving. Some of his disciples stopped following Jesus that day. 
And the way that people viewed Jesus started to shift. Now we come into chapter seven and the opinions about Jesus come front and center. The whole chapter is full of how people view Jesus. The tide of public opinion about Jesus is turning. And so this morning, first, I want you to see the turning tide, turning tide. Immediately, verse one, it says, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, this is referring to the Jewish authorities, the, the leaders. And, and these Jewish leaders have always been resistant to Jesus. They've always been antagonistic. They're always trying uh, to, to catch him in something. But it seems that now they're starting to influence the crowd, the common people. It's spreading. In John 7, if you were to look at the whole chapter, John uses the word crowd or people eight times. It also can be translated mob or multitude. Now, back in John 6, the crowd was following Jesus around. So John 6, 2, it says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the 6. So in chapter 6, the crowd is intrigued with Jesus. They're following him where he goes. They're listening to his teaching. He's providing food for them. And now in John chapter 7, there's a, there's a shift that's starting to happen. Public opinion is becoming a bit more negative. There's a trajectory that will continue all the way to the end of Jesus' life. Into chapter 19, when, if you remember, he stands before Pilate. And what does the crowd, what does the mob say? They say, crucify him, right? So this is the trajectory that we have now begun. You could say it's the beginning of the end. Now, it's because of this tumultuous climate that Jesus decides not to go up to the feast with his family, but instead, he comes late and he slips in quietly. Now, this Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, is the setting for chapter seven. So let's learn a little bit about that. I don't know how familiar you are with Feast of Tabernacles, but um, I kind of forgot myself. And so there's a couple things about the Feast of Tabernacles. It is called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths because it was a time to remember the way that Israel wandered in the wilderness and they lived in tents. They tented or tabernacled. And they remembered how God tabernacled with them in the tabernacle. Now, God commanded his people to observe this festival, this holiday in Leviticus 23. You can read a lot about that if you want to read more. Leviticus 23 is where God sets those, uh, this holiday for them to observe. It's one of three feasts that the, the, the Jewish people would, would, would all come to Jerusalem. So they would leave wherever they lived and migrate, make their way to Jerusalem. Historians tell us it's the best attended of the three feasts. So there's a lot of people coming into the city. A lot of people who are making their way back to Jerusalem. And people would actually camp in booths for a week. Now, depending on how you feel about camping, this either is a really fun holiday or one you put up with, right? How many campers are there? Like, you're really a camper. Okay, yeah. You have tents and like you do it the real way and all that. Well, this is the kind of camping that everyone can admit makes sense because what they would do is they would camp in booths for a week to remember they don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> so, and some people say, well, why do we camp when we have these modern conveniences? Well, this is a very purposeful camping excursion. They camp in these booths to remember the wandering that the children of Israel experienced and how God brought them into a land and they no longer have to wander anymore. And that's the purpose of the Feast of Booths. They would make daily offerings. They would celebrate, celebrate by waving these bundles of like uh, produce and fruit and palm branches it was also during uh, harvest time. So it was like a harvest 
festival, all right? So it's like camping meets like, you know, Thanksgiving harvest festival, that's what's going on. Now, because it's such a big holiday and so many people are gonna be there, Jesus' brothers are like, this is a perfect time, Jesus, to introduce yourself as the miracle worker. Like, do some stuff. Like, show yourself, this is the perfect time. Everyone's gonna be together. This is, in their minds, the right time, but Jesus says no. Jesus knew something that they didn't know. First, he's on God's timetable, not theirs. He knows that God has a time for him to be fully introduced in all of his glory, and it's not now. And, and Jesus understands God's plan. It's different than man's plan. See, in about six months, Passover is going to happen. And, and Jesus knows that God's plan has a Passover shape, not a feast of tabernacle shape. He's going to be the lamb who is slain. And so he is going to be presented in Jerusalem. He is going to be on display, but not the way that his brothers think. It's altogether different. He will prove himself, but he'll prove himself as the Lamb of God. Let's read on in the chapter. Let's uh, keep going in verse 11 and see what, see what happens. John 7, starting in verse 11, and we'll read through 24. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Okay, so Jesus waits till well into the feast to speak up. And when he does, his message is hard-hitting. People are beginning to trip over Jesus. They're starting to have some problems with this teacher and this leader for numerous reasons. I mean, verse seven, Jesus himself says that he exposes sin and nobody likes to have their sin exposed. No one likes to be told they're in sin. And Jesus confronts these religious leaders. He confronts them and he reveals their desire to kill him. And I just think it's such a masterful way that Jesus confronts them too. Did you notice? He, he brings up Moses three times. Now this is really appropriate because in the Feast of Tabernacles, they're remembering the time of wandering where Moses led them. And so Moses is on people's minds. That whole era in, in their nation's history is what they're talking about. And so he's teaching and everyone is tracking. He says, has not Moses given you the law? And they're all thinking, absolutely. 
somebody saying, keep preaching, you know, amen, you know, that, and then the next words out of his mouth are, yet none of you keep the law. Ouch. <laughs> I mean, this is what the Pharisees' whole purpose was, was to keep the law. This is what they made their main aim, and Jesus says, you don't keep the law. But Jesus' point is that the religious leaders are so upset with Jesus, they've missed the point of the law. They don't even understand what the law is about. They were furious with him for healing somebody on the Sabbath, yet they were breaking the sixth commandment right then. See, they're seeking to kill Jesus. Thou shalt not murder. And they're trying to kill Jesus, actively engaged in this sin of wanting to murder. Meanwhile, they're upset with the way he's healing somebody on the Sabbath. And so Jesus points out their hypocrisy. They don't like that. And what they didn't realize is that all of the law, all of it, the, the festivals, the exodus, the tabernacle, everything was meant to point to the man who was standing right in front of them, the God-man. They didn't realize that. They got caught up in the law, and they didn't realize that the law was meant to point to Jesus Christ. Verse 15, people have a problem with Jesus' authority, too. They, they say, how is this guy so learned when he's never had a teacher? People were impressed with Jesus' teaching, but they were skeptical because Jesus didn't follow the protocol. There was, there was a, a prescribed path for a rabbi. What would happen is if you desired to be a rabbi, you would find a rabbi, and they would agree to have you sit at their feet and learn. And Jesus never did this. If you were really lucky, you would find a, an esteemed Pharisee, somebody who was really well-known. That'd be like the Ivy Leagues, right? So you're sitting there among this learned teacher, and you're absorbing, and you're learning, and then it comes your time to be a rabbi. Jesus never did this. Remember when he's in the temple as a teenager or a preteen, and he's teaching already? Jesus just started teaching. <laughs> Why? Because he says his authority comes from God. God sent him. God is the one whose feet he sat at. And so this would have been interpreted as arrogance. And indeed, it would have been arrogance if Jesus was not God. I want to keep reading John 7, verse 25, and let's read through verse 36. So John 7, verse 25 and following. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. And so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? 
Now, verse 27, people can't get their heads around Jesus' ordinary beginnings. Again, there's this multiple things that people are stumbling upon, and the opinions about Jesus are starting to change. And, and they just look at him and they say, we know where you come from. We know you. We know your family. You're a carpenter. And Jesus makes it clear that they know where he comes from, but they don't really know where he comes from. They know his origin, his family, but they don't really, really know where he's coming from. He says that he was sent from God. And what's even worse than them not knowing that Jesus comes from God, he says they don't even know God. He looks at him and says, I know him, you don't know God. Ouch again. <laughs> you don't keep the law, you don't know God. So I guess it's not surprising then that there's this growing anger and antipathy towards Jesus that is slowly building. Here's something important for us to, to recognize this morning. Regardless of what the crowd or public opinion about Jesus is, this does not change the reality of who he really is. Regardless of what culture says about Jesus, it does not change who he really is. Jesus remains who he is regardless of what culture says. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't matter what people say about him. And this is true today. The biblical ethic is being abandoned, seen as irrelevant. Christians have misrepresented Jesus and created caricatures of Jesus that people like to hate on. We've not done ourselves a favor here. <laughs> Evangelicalism has been fracturing and, and polarizing, and so the state of things is one in which people can throw a lot of stones at Jesus and his church. More and more, we're living in a post-Christian culture, and it seems as if the tide is, is turning. If you're a beachgoer, you know that tides are kind of important, right? Like when you go down to the beach, you probably pay attention to the tides. If you don't, eventually you'll start to. Um, and so I always usually pull, pull out my phone. I'm like, where's the tide? Okay, it's going down. We can plant ourselves right up here by the water, and we'll be good, right? It's a lot simpler today than it used to. Our family's always been lovers of the beach. And back when the kids were really little, this is how beach day went. We show up at the beach, and Mark immediately goes into dig the pit mode. And I dig a massive pit, and it had to be a pit um, where I built in little kitchen things and little knobs. And the girls had these, like, cupcake tray things. And so the whole day, they're making these delicious treats, and we're eating them. And throwing them to the side and eating. Oh, it's delicious, so good. That's, that's what the whole day was. And as the tide would start to come up, the whole goal was like, we're in there for the long haul. We have all this like stuff that I worked hard on. So, so I would build this moat around the whole area, right? So this big trench so that as the water started coming up, it would spill into the moat and then it would just go like this. And then what would happen is everyone else on the beach was going back and we were on our own little island sitting there feeling really, really cool, you know, because we had our own little real estate. No one was around us. But there were times where that water was coming and I'm just trying to dig this trench and I'm spending like, like my whole time just trying to protect our little piece of real estate. Some believers feel exactly this way in our culture today. They see the tide shifting. They feel afraid. Everything they know is being washed away. And it can be very tempting to give in to anxiety and to give in to worry. But this morning, I want us to see that we need not worry. We need not be afraid. 
God has strategically planned for you and I to live in this time and in this place. It's not an accident. God is sovereign. He knew when I would be born. He could have had us living in a time when prayer was in schools and people just claimed to be a Christian, but he has us here right now. He doesn't make mistakes. And what we're going to see as we read on here is his truth is still truth just as, as it always has been. It's just as relevant for our society today, no matter what people say about Jesus. And he brings incredible hope to our world. And so we've seen a turning tide. Now I want us to see the living water in verses 37 and following. Look in your Bibles there. We're going to read a couple verses, 37 through 39. Let's see what Jesus says. This is beautiful. John 7, 37 says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, back in chapter four, Jesus offered living water to a Samaritan woman. And now he offers it to his own Jewish people. Some more helpful background about the Feast of Tabernacles that we become aware of and why Jesus said what he said. Each of the first six days, remember, they're camping in these booths, celebrating, they're singing, all this kind of stuff. And each of the first six days, it was customary to fill this golden flagon, this like container with water. And they would march it, they would fill it at the pool of Siloam. You see that in scripture. And then they would march it. I don't know exactly what this looked like, but they would march this cup of water to the temple. And when they got to the temple, there would be these uh, shofars, these trumpets that would sound. And then they would hand the water to the priest. The priest would take the water to the altar and the priest would pour out the water over the altar. This is what would happen each day. It's been said that there was a choir that sang the words of Isaiah 12, 3. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, this ceremony commemorated the rock that provided water during Israel's journey in the desert. And so it makes Jesus' words so incredibly strategic. Do you happen to notice the way that Jesus is speaking here? Notice how he is speaking. It says he stood up and he cried out. He shouts. It's the same word used in verse 28. He proclaimed. So when Jesus first gets to the festival, he's incognito. Then he starts teaching in the temple. And then somewhere along the line, he like shifts gears and he starts to like raise his voice and draw attention because he knows that what he has to say is of utmost importance. He doesn't do miracles like his brothers wanted. He doesn't flash and show people all this. He teaches something, and what he's teaching couldn't be more important. What did he say? He says, I am the life. I am the water. If you're thirsty, come to me. Even if you don't realize it, I'm what you need. Can you imagine this procession with the water? They fill it up. They take it along. They're singing, you know, these songs about you will draw salvation from the wells. And then they hand it to the priest. The priest pours it over the altar. And then Jesus gets up and says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I have the waters of salvation. What a beautiful picture that Jesus gives them. And John gives us a little commentary here. And he says that Jesus' pronouncement, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. 
This is the well of living water that, that God gives us, that he puts in us. It's this Holy Spirit that'll be given to believers after the ascension. And so Jesus' teaching on the Spirit here is a perfect way to utilize the water pouring ceremony in the Feast of Tabernacles and to use it as an object lesson. That this is fulfilling the Old Testament. Here's what I mean. All of the tabernacling, which I don't think is a word. Somebody told me that after the first gathering. All of the tabernacling that was happening um, during the Exodus was God's way that he dwelt with his people. It's God's way of being with his people. As they tabernacle, his glory descends on that area and he tabernacles with us. And they would pick up and they would go from place to place based on God's itinerary. And they'd set up the tabernacle in each new landing spot and that's how God moved with them. God's presence was tabernacling with them. But with Jesus, everything is starting to change. New wine is bursting through the wineskins, John 2. We saw that, right? Here was Jesus, God in the flesh, tabernacling with humans. That's John 1. And now he says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So for whoever believes in Jesus, God dwells in. He tabernacles in us, inside of us. God with us, in us. And the rest of scripture hammers home the point that he is a deposit. The Holy Spirit is in us and he's gonna be in us all the way home. He never leaves us. He is this well of living water that is, that is issuing from us. This should light up your heart this morning. To know that all of history, all of this, you know, the whole Old Testament that is talking about God tabernacling with his people and God dwelling with his people, it's all leading to this point where Jesus is presenting himself and he's giving us the Holy Spirit so that God dwells with us. God is in us. That's important because even if we go through a dry season, and you might be in that right now where you feel, you feel very dry, if you're honest and you're, you're just, you're open about it, you'd say, man, I feel like I'm in a desert. That's how you feel. That's valid. But the truth that we have to remind ourselves is that Jesus lives in you. His Holy Spirit is in you. You have a well of living water. You have a stream of living water inside of you. It's rejuvenating. So even today, if that's where you are, you can draw from that well. You can remind yourself of Jesus and the Spirit of God. That's a blessing. John 7, verse 40. Let's read the rest of the text here. And John 7, verse 40 and following says this. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? 
And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So the opposition just continues to build. People are still struggling with Jesus. They just can't get around certain things. They're struggling with the fact that of where he comes from. And honestly, to me, it looks like they're looking for excuses to, to deny him. They're looking for excuses to dismiss him. They say, isn't the Messiah supposed to be part of David's line? And, and isn't he supposed to come from Bethlehem? Now, the text is dripping with irony because if you've read any of the Gospels and you're familiar with it, you know that Jesus actually is from Bethlehem. <laughs> and Jesus actually is from the line of David, scripture makes that abundantly clear. But people didn't even dig hard enough to find out the truth with Jesus. There's also something ironic in verse 48 and 49. They say, the Pharisees go, well, okay, but have any of the like trained professionals, the ones who really know the law, have any of them followed Jesus? Or just the stupid sheep, the people, right? None of, the, none of us have followed Jesus, right? And then the very next verse, verse 50, there's one standing in their midst who's a Pharisee who's starting to believe. That's beautiful, right? God is reaching people's hearts. They can't see what they don't want to see. The Pharisees can't see what they don't want to say. They want to see. They're stumbling over Jesus, and I would say willingly, if we jump back to verse 16 and 17, if you notice in your text, uh, it's interesting because this, these verses um, say something here, 16 and 17. Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So, so right here, Jesus says that if a person submits their will to God, they will see Jesus for who he really is. And the converse would also be true. If we refuse to submit our heart and our life to Jesus, to God, we cannot see Jesus for who he really is. You could say it this way. Submitting our heart paves the way for settling our mind. Submitting our heart paves the way for settling our mind. The biggest roadblock for the gospel to take root is not intellectual, but moral, a refusal to want to submit to King Jesus. I have to take just a moment and I have to mention to you that my brother Adam, who I, I mean, he's only a couple years younger than me, so that makes him in his 40s now. And he um, is really smart, okay, really intellectual. He, he, you know, he defeats us in that, in that arena. And ever since he became an adult, he struggled with the Jesus in the Bible. He said, I could believe in Jesus, but not, not the way I was taught, not, not, not here. And he has studied every religion that there is. He has, you name it, he studied it. He's, he's gone down the intellectual pursuit and philosophy and all of this. And it wasn't until just a couple months ago that he finally came to know Jesus as the Savior, which is pretty awesome. Um, that's a testament to, testament to God and to the prayers of of, of, of his people, but I, I bring, bring that example up to you because it, when I had a conversation with my brother, it, was not, um, it wasn't about the intellectual arguments. He read the Bible and he said, Mark, I'm reading the Bible and it's coming alive and never has before. God started using his word to just soften his heart. It, it wasn't 
oh, we finally got this argument. I mean, trust me, I gave him some of those arguments. And we've had those discussions over the years, and God uses those things. But there has to be something that happens in our heart where we submit and we say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to follow you. I don't have it all figured out yet. And when we see people that are following Jesus in the Gospels, they don't necessarily have it all figured out yet. They're just following after him. They're figuring it out as they go. They're saying, well, I don't really understand what Jesus is doing here, but I'm with him. I'm following him. He's got my life. There's my nets. Here I go. And so I bring all that up to say, like, you might be wrestling with some things. You may be tr- not sure how to, what to do with all this. And what Jesus says is unless you submit your will to God, you cannot know Jesus for who he really is. So today might be a day just to lay it down and just to submit. Just say, I don't know God, but I know your spirit's working on me and I want to give you my life. N.T. Wright says this. He says, often people look at Jesus and draw conclusions about him based on faulty ideas of God in the world. But the Christian message insists that people must learn afresh who God is, what the world is, and who we ourselves are by looking at Jesus. That is the right way around. And despite all the opposition in chapter 7, there are people who are beginning to see things the right way around. There are people who are seeing Jesus for who he really is. Verse 30 says, yet many of the people believed in him. Verse 31, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? Verse 46 even, no one ever spoke like this man. And by the way, people still say that today when they read the Gospels for the first time or the first time in a long time. They'll go, man, I thought I knew Jesus, but he said that? Really? That's, who Je- that's what Jesus did? It's a little uh, reminder that what a blessing to read through the Bible with somebody, have a one-to-one with somebody who's not yet a follower of Christ. Because as you read and you encounter Jesus and you see what he said and what he did, you're like, that's not what I expected. And in verse 50 through 52, we have Nicodemus, the Pharisee, right? And John will later in chapter 19 tell us that Nicodemus helps to bury the body of Jesus. He helps fund it. He physically carries Jesus' body into the tomb. God is doing a work in Nicodemus. And all the opposition against Jesus cannot stop it. And so it is true today. God is bringing people to himself. He's building his church. And the Bible says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the gospel. The force of the gospel is winning. God is doing what he is doing. He's pushing back the darkness. And in one life at a time, the tide is turning. And this is what's happening. We know it's happening Where there was apathy towards Jesus, there's now passion. Where there was disbelief, there's now faith. And here's the encouragement for us as a community who is seeking to be on mission, to make disciples who make disciples. God is building his kingdom. There are people that will find refreshment in Jesus. We're promised that in scripture, and we see it in John 7, and we also know it's happening because we continue to see stories of that in our community People who are saying, wow, I've been to church before, but I've never seen Jesus like that. I I never really understood him. And and just somebody the other day said, I don't know what it means to follow Jesus, but I I guess I'm going to figure it out. And that's the idea is I submit to you, Jesus, and I'm following you. 
This is a beautiful privilege that we're given to be able to share the living water of Jesus with those around us. Now, admittedly, we live in a world where we think, um, I don't think they actually want it. <laughs> but we know, we know based on the word of God that there are some people who are thirsting for it. We know this because many of us could come up here and share story after story of how we searched for satisfaction, how we looked for fulfillment. And what do we come up with? We came up empty. The world's a desert. What it promises us is a mirage. You experience it and then it's gone. And so we could share that. We could all share about what we've seen. So we know this is true. There are people that are parched. There are people that are desperate for Jesus. And once we found the living water, we get to share it with others. This can feel intimidating, you know, to think about sharing Jesus with somebody that that we don't know how they're gonna respond, but I want to remind you that we have everything that we need because he's put his spirit in us. This interesting phrase in verse 38, out of our hearts flow rivers of living water, and John says this is the spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit, which is more than enough to help us make disciples. And as the spirit works in us, as the spirit does his work, he spills out of us, and out of us is flowing living waters, and our prayer is that people see that and that people are changed. Isaiah talks about uh, one day, this is at the end of time, he talks about the entire earth being filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord. Isaiah 11 says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now that's a culture that I would like to live in right there where the whole world is full of the glory of God and the knowledge of God. That's beautiful. And we're not there yet. (laughs) We're not there. And so sometimes it can feel like, what's gonna happen? This is our future, okay? This is what's going to happen. There's a day coming when everyone sees Jesus for who he is and he's glorified. It's hard to see it right now, just like it was hard to see when Jesus is starting to face this opposition, But make no mistake, nothing can stop this. In John 7, people are trying to arrest and kill Jesus, but they can't because God is in control. (laughs) Nothing can happen outside of God's plan. And I assure you, nothing is happening right now in our world outside of God's allowance, outside of his sovereign hand. Nothing is happening outside of God's purpose. So be encouraged, believer, this morning. Don't get caught up in disillusionment or despair. Yes, I know we see culture shifting. Even though you're going to encounter people who are antagonistic towards Jesus and his followers, Jesus has an offer of life and refreshment and fulfillment and satisfaction. And it's just as valid as it's ever been. And there are some who are thirsting for it. The mission is before us. It hasn't changed. Our time is now. This is the time that God has us here. And we can share Jesus with the confidence, the humble, quiet confidence that God's in control. He will do a work and he's filling his earth with people who know him and represent him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this beautiful truth that even though we look around and we see a world that seems to reject your son, Jesus, nothing is outside of your purpose. Your son, Jesus, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is the living water. Your spirit is a river of living water that we need, we desperately need. So thank you for the refreshment that you give us, and not only us, 
Thank you for the hope that that presents to the world around us. Lord, may we not live in fear or anxiety or worry, but as we raise our families and as we live our lives, may we have this quiet, humble confidence that you are doing a work. The gates of hell cannot prevail, and you are turning the tide one life at a time. You are changing people, God. We pray for you to do that in our city. We beg you to do that, and would you see fit to use us? And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.